This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. This is, this is, I, I'm a fan of bear sweaters, as you know, so I am wearing another bear sweater. And every time I wear bear sweaters, the market just does its thing. So, you know, great way to cost average in, you know, every time, every time I want to bid, I just wear a bear sweater and, you know, take it as an opportunity to buy the stuff that I love. There you go. There you go. I love it. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. GM, GM, how are we doing, sir? Hey, Jason. How's it going? Good, good. What's a busy day for you, huh? Pretty busy, yeah. It's been been busy as of late how about you good man good where in the world are you i am skiing somewhere in the world nice nice <laughs> yeah too much travel for you santi too much travel for you recently oh and you got a haircut you look so so dapper i feel like you know originally the structure of these things was you know you've kind of got your like narrative watch you're a couple big things that we're looking at and then you get into the news and honestly, it feels like another week where the narratives and just some of these big ideas might be too much. And we will kind of glance over some of the new stuff at the end. Uh, a couple shout outs. One is guest episodes have been moved to Mondays. Uh, so instead of guest episode on Thursday, weekly roundup on Friday, we're doing it a little differently. Uh, guest episode is going to be on Mondays. Uh, and then the roundup will stay on Fridays. Uh, if you guys haven't subscribed to the show and you're listening to this, Hit the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, etc. Santi, you're not going to like my first call out. Bitcoin is feeling hot, my friend. Bitcoin's feeling hot. We've got a lot of things that almost like, like the last couple of weeks, I've tried to talk about like, uh, you know, bear market, maybe things unraveling like Wonderland and Safu and like the MIM UST peg was going a little crazy. And like, you've got this wormhole, 120,000 ETH hack, uh, GameStop dumped on us. Justin Sun is trying to do this governance attack. And I was kind of feeling like um, a lot of just crypto was uh, maybe struggling with, with a couple of things. Um, and right now, actually, one narrative that feels kind of obvious to me is that Bitcoin is really heating up, right? Um, you've got things like Russia going on, BlackRock, KPMG, the El Salvador bonds just got approved. You know, in a over the, the last seven days, Bitcoin's up 20%. The S&P's up only 2%. So I want to get into some of these Bitcoin stories. Um, but I, I just want to kind of get your take on that and, and how you're seeing things play out from your end. Well, look, I'm happy to see the Bitcoin, obviously. We talked about it in a prior episode, which it feels to me that Bitcoin is entering this sort of geopolitical game theory where countries uh, are using it or in realizing that it is a mechanism to just do things differently. Um, and obviously, you know, I, when I think of El Salvador implementing that, you know, the entire region is over reliant on the dollar. And when you have 60 plus percent of all dollars in circulation being printed in a year, well, it sort of opens up a possibility for people to think about, okay, is there a possibility to use something else? Um, and in this case, I mean, I think Russia and China have been toying with the idea of something else to circumvent SWIFT, which is a network that is, you know, can is used to enforce a lot of sanctions and you know i i don't want to get too much into that discussion but i do think that it is interesting to observe that 
I felt that El Salvador, a small country as it is, really kind of is was a first step into countries and realizing, okay, well, we can actually use Bitcoin as a legal tender. And this is pretty interesting to hold as a reserve asset. Uh, and your balance sheet, like, I'll give you an example, for instance, a lot of these countries hold in their treasury, you know, central banks and, um, and just governments hold as an asset dollars. China has a lot of U.S. treasuries. I think it's the country that has the most amount of U.S. treasuries. So when you think about that, then why wouldn't you hold some percentage of that in Bitcoin, which is, to me, it feels like it's the same argument that we go back to, which is in any portfolio, you can't think of a you can't think of assets in isolation. You always look at the risk across assets. And this is like Moskowitz, like portfolio theory, right? And so, I mean, I've, I've had conversations with the central banks uh, of Mexico and other places, and I've told them, like, just give me a reason why you wouldn't want to hold 0.01% in Bitcoin and the asymmetry that you can have. And not only, you know, and putting other factors like, do you want to be holding a dollar? And I think, like, invariably, a lot of people just come back to this idea, well, the dollar is the least of the worst. It is the 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 safest asset. It's the asset that most people want. It's the asset that most people flock to in times of uncertainty. And I get that argument. But, you know, race, Jason, you got to remember, right? Like, for the first time, you have a non-sovereign thing that can be a store of value so it's super interesting i mean i think it was mike and you that brought it up in the last episode we are entering in this geopolitical game theory chessboard and it's super interesting to observe in real time yeah yeah i mean specifically with el salvador so actually i think the biggest news of the week was russia but el salvador is also interesting right el salvador is basically doing what michael saylor did uh the michael the michael saylor uh, sailor strategy uh, issuing debt to basically buy bitcoin essentially at a countrywide level and this is just like what happens like the world just gets weird right when interest rates are so low uh, and this is kind of the things that you see play out so with el salvador for those who don't know they're planning uh, their first bitcoin bond issuance i think it'll be between march 15th and march 20th they're issuing a billion dollars for the first bond. Uh, their finance minister said that that might be overscribed by an additional 500 million. The bond is issued on Blockstream's liquid network sidechain. Um, and this bond has a 6.5% coupon uh, and matures, I think, in like a decade from now. And they're using half the issue for Bitcoin purchases. The other half is like energy infrastructure, uh, I think Bitcoin mining related things, but they're basically issuing very cheap debt uh, to be able to then go out and just buy Bitcoin. And this ties into Russia, uh, because what I originally thought was going to happen is basically you had Michael Saylor. I thought a couple more corporations were going to do it, issue debt to buy Bitcoin. Eh, debatable if it's a good strategy or not, but so far it's playing out well. Then a country does it, right? El Salvador. And I kind of thought it was going to be continue to be more like smaller Latin American countries. Russia doing this is massive. Obviously, they didn't issue debt to do this, but here's kind of the update on Russia. Previously, the Bank of Russia had expressed their disapproval of crypto and kind of called for this outright ban, though a little hard for me to believe that that was actually the case. I think this is kind of Putin playing chess, we're playing checkers. Then Putin goes on the record, outlines Russia's advantages in Bitcoin mining. We're like, oh, interesting. Maybe Russia's doing something with Bitcoin mining. And now this week, Russia moves to recognize crypto as an actual form of currency. That's really, really interesting for a couple of reasons. And I think, I mean, you mentioned that we're so reliant on the dollar. I think you kind of have to understand that like the, the petrodollar system, the high level on the petrodollar for those who don't know, um, and I'll just, this is my super simplified version uh, because I don't 
understand it, the intricacies of it too well, but like in 1944, basically Bretton Woods established the dollar as the global reserve currency. So it kind of goes back to that. And what this meant is that international commodities were then priced in dollars. Uh, and there's this condition that a lot of us know of now that like these dollars would re- remain redeemable for gold at I think it was like $35 an ounce or $21 an ounce, something, right? The U.S. promised, basically promised to print not that much money. And this was this honor system. And during the honor system, the Fed refused to allow any audits or supervisions of its printing press. Uh, And as we all know, starting uh, semi-recently, they didn't honor their promise, right? Uh, In the years, it's gotten really bad recently, but this actually kind of goes back to the Vietnam War. In the years leading up to the 1970s, the Vietnam War expenditures made it clear to other countries that the U.S. was just printing far more money than it had in gold. Uh, and, and in response, the countries asked for their gold back, which set off this like rapid devaluation of the dollar. Uh, and I think it was actually France in 1971 tried to withdraw its gold. Nixon refuses. Nixon temporarily, quote unquote, quotes, right, big air quotes, temporarily suspends the convertibility of the dollar into gold. Uh, and this turned out not to be a temporary suspension, but a permanent default. And for the rest of the world who had kind of entrusted the U.S. with their gold, this became like theft. And so what ended up happening is in 1973, Nixon uh, pretty intelligently asked Saudi Arabia's president to accept only U.S. dollars as payment for oil and to invest any of those excess profits in U.S. Treasury bonds, uh, like T-bills, notes, things like that. Right. And in return, Nixon offered the military protection of Saudi oil fields uh, and also offered that to all of the kind of key oil producing countries. And by 1975, every member of OPEC had agreed to sell their oil only in U.S. dollars. Anyways, long ramble. But basically what this did is like they moved the dollar off of gold, tied it to foreign uh, oil instead. Uh, which instantly forced every oil importing country in the world to maintain a constant supply of U.S. dollars. And to get those U.S. dollars, they had to send actual oil barrels, right, oil to America. And this was the birth of the petrodollar. So I think that's important to understand because I think there are two thoughts here, and one of them ties back to the petrodollar. I think that what Russia's doing here is there's an argument that, I, I mean, you brought this up, right? There have been plans to remove Russia from the SWIFT payment system. Uh, I mean, this could just be Putin looking for a way to sidestep the dollar in the conventional payment system, right? If you could see, it's kind of like a three-step process, right? Putin supports the Russian government proposal to allow regulated Bitcoin mining um, and like accepts Bitcoin as a currency. Biden and the U.S. are preparing to release this executive order to, or they, they might, right? to regulate Bitcoin as like this national security matter. And then if Russia and OPEC begin, begins denominating transactions in Bitcoin, this whole petrodollar system that I just talked about becomes obsolete. What do you think of that? Yeah. No, I think it's right. I mean, it, obviously, I've felt for a while the U.S. hegemony is going down. And it's sort of one of two things, how, you, how Bitcoin kind of enters the global state. You've seen resistance from the IMF, the World Bank, countries like the U.S., China, India. And so it takes like – it's sort of like a theory of like um, adoption, which is at what point will we flip a switch where it just becomes an inevitability where you fight it, you try to ban it, you hate the where the world is headed. But like is it too – like it, it, are you going to be able to stop it? And I think at this point like – 
if everything settles in Bitcoin as a neutral, like you always want to have a neutral kind of, it's sort of, I think we'll make, what I'm trying to say is I think in 20 years time, we'll look back and and wonder like, why were we settling things in a non-neutral pair, base pair, meaning a dollar? Whereas you could settle that in something like Bitcoin. Okay, Bitcoin is also a reference asset because it's priced in other currencies. I get that. But nonetheless, like it is sort of like NFTs, right? You think about NFTs in ETH terms. That's the economy. That's how you think of it. It's a neutral asset, meaning it has a very fixed monetary policy inflation curve. They're very fixed and predictable. It's a very fixed and predictable system that is not controlled by anyone. Like in a world where you could settle some in Bitcoin or ETH terms, then that just sort of like is a neutral platform where anyone can come. And I think you're back to like, I don't think that's too bad. I mean, of course, governments might resist that, but I think Russia moving this direction is huge. Probably China is going to move in this direction as well. And then after that, you know, why wouldn't you see a world where petrodollars go away and you just settle in Bitcoin terms? Right. And then Bitcoin over time is going to be less volatile. Like, obviously, it's very volatile now, but you can still hedge it. Like, it doesn't bother me as much. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it was Wences Casares who first introduced this, or at least introduced it in my head, where he basically said, like, what does a world in which Bitcoin succeeds look like? Right. And I think a lot of people talk about Bitcoin replacing national currencies. And Wences's argument would be that that's not going to happen, but it'll kind of be this super national currency that exists kind of on top of all national currencies, right? Where it becomes this like global, non-political standard of value and settlement. And that sounds weird, but if you think about it, like the world are already has a global, non-political standard of measure in the meter, right? And a global, non-political standard of weight in like the kilo. Uh, could you imagine this world like where we change the length of the meter or the weight of the kilo according to political considerations? That sounds totally crazy, but that's kind of what we do with the standard of value today, um, right? Today, we use the US dollar as a global standard of value, Um but but that's not perfect, right? It's lost significant value since its inception. And it's hard to know like how many do- dollars will be outstanding in the future and increasingly the ability or in- or really inability to use it as a platform uh, depends more and more on political considerations. So the world, it's starting to seem like might be better off with a global non-political standard of value, right? And in a world where this succeeds... Um, and this is why this Russia thing is so crazy to me. And maybe I'm putting too much emphasis on it, but like in a world where Bitcoin succeeds, you could Im- you could imagine where like commodities and other currencies are priced and quoted in satoshis, which is the smallest fraction of a Bitcoin. Like when your again, it's like Wences who said this, but like when your granddaughter asks what's the price of the New Zealand dollar, you might get an answer in satoshis, right? The New Zealand dollar is 72 satoshis today. And the price of the Turkish lira is 21 satoshis today. And the dollar is 107 satoshis. A barrel of oil, 5,600 satoshis. Global GDP, 97 million bitcoins, right? The GDP of Indonesia, 1.5 million bitcoins. You get the point. And that makes value easily comparable across time and geography, which just seems like to me a better system. And that's, and this Russian news feels like maybe going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think again, it's it's increasingly less hard to envision a world where that is the norm because it just you sort of need that. And I think your point's a really good one, which is other systems have this quasi neutral standards. 
and non-reliant on subjectivity of central banks and the whims of bankers that can just print money on, on the fly. And I think, if anything, like all of this emphasis on macro and rates going up, I think it just serves as, again, I don't know what the next global financial crisis would look like, but it's starting to feel to me that, I mean, Ray Daly talks about this so well, which is there will be a massive deleveraging at some point. Like there will be a massive disillusionment in this idea that like you hold an asset called a dollar. And we've been in an environment where it's sort of, again, the least of the worst. But everyone, I don't think anyone can disagree that um, it's just not, even Jay Powell says it, it's, they know that it's something, the music has to stop at some point. And I think the, maybe it requires a very drastic like devaluation of something like the dollar where it's very noticeable when you compare it in Bitcoin terms. I love these charts of like pricing everything in Bitcoin, like the Turkish lira, the Mexican peso. At some point, the dollar is going to be priced in Bitcoin terms and you're going to realize, okay, one's a hard asset, another one is not. And, you know, that's always, uh, you know, like NFTs, they get priced in ETH or soul terms, you know. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting updates from Avalanche, one of the leading L1s. First, the Particle NFT sale powered by Avalanche. Particle has fractionalized high-end art into 10,000 NFTs, the first piece being Banksy's. Love is in the air. Check it out, particlecollection.com. Number two, an ILO, initial litigation offering, has started on Avalanche in partnership with Rival, Rival with a Y, a community fundraising platform for court cases. Really interesting use case there. Uh, number three, enterprise partnerships growing on Avalanche. Deloitte recently partnered with them to optimize logistics around natural disaster relief and claims payouts. MasterCard also tapped them to help accelerate crypto startups. Uh, number four, last but not least, I got an early look at a report from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that shows the energy usage of various L1s. Avalanche came out very low in terms of total energy usage relative to other L1s. Thank you, Avalanche. Big thanks for sponsoring Empire. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah. Now, the counter argument to all, the, all of this is like that that's not what's going to happen. And this is just uh, a country that's in an economy that's very dependent on oil. That strategy seems to be going downhill as the world moves to almost like more sustainable, climate-friendly sources of energy uh russia sees that and sees how dependent they are on oil and this is just maybe putin and a country that's dependent on oil and has like massive oil and gas reserves saying holy shit we need to pivot our strategy let's go all in on crypto and let's go all in on bitcoin especially considering we have these massive oil and gas reserves natural resources this is kind of the perfect recipe for a bitcoin mining powerhouse um that's the, that's the other argument. And they're not mutually exclusive, of course. So either way, game theory at work. Very interesting to see play out. Um, there's another piece of big news, which is that BlackRock's offering crypto um, in two different ways. One is they're planning to enter the crypto space with, cl quote, client-supported trading and then with their own credit facility. Basically, clients would be able to borrow from BlackRock by pledging crypto assets as collateral. And then another one is that this their platform, Aladdin, which stands for Assets, Liability, Debt, and Derivatives Investment Network, uh, you could actually, their clients would be able to actually, I think, trade crypto through the Aladdin platform. This is just, um, this is really interesting. Just, we don't have to spend too much time on it, but like 
BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. They have $10 trillion uh, assets under management. This, to me, feels like the... You remember when Paul Tudor Jones got into Bitcoin? And it was like, okay, that's the... Called it the fastest horse in the race. That's the That was kind of like the moment where, okay, cool. Paul Tudor Jones is in. Every single hedge fund in the world can has like the acceptance to get into Bitcoin and won't get fired because PTJ is in. BlackRock getting in, to me, feels like that moment for financial institutions where it's like, okay, cool, BlackRock's in. Now we're good. I'm not going to get fired by by kind of making this proposal that we should offer Bitcoin because BlackRock's in. And like Larry Fink thinks it's cool now. So yeah, what do you think of this? I've seen Larry talk about, you know, he gets asked a question, what do you think about cryptocurrencies? What do you think about Bitcoin? He's like, look, I don't have a strong opinion, but I know our clients do and increasingly so. And so at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Larry thinks. It matters what the clients want. And I think I, I tweeted about this earlier. I was thinking about it is, okay, so in a world where like clients, I, I like moments where like, okay, th- this rate hike forces portfolio managers to think about and reassess their portfolio, right? Okay, if, if rates go up, you can think about, okay, how do I reposition the portfolio? Bonds perhaps might become more interesting on the margin. Uh, stocks, not so much, or, you know, just there is a, there's a kind of an adjustment, right, of, of invariably because you discount everything back and you know in and safer assets become like bonds become more interesting i guess i guess but still you need to beat inflation right and so i think this moments of what i'm trying to say is i think these moments are useful for something like crypto where it's been in the conversation for so many years right we've been 10 plus years i think the cambridge associates which is a kind of a independent kind of think tank that's called that consultants that pension funds really and, and large institutions and family offices look towards as as recommendations to where allocate their portfolio and it was like i think this was like 2017 or 2018 where they came out and said look some se- some exposure to crypto one to five percent i think is what they said is sensible uh because you know you you look back at the data and if you had a and they construct different portfolios it goes back, again back to moskowitz portfolio theory and that's fine uh and i think it requires, I'm excited because I think we will now see the same type of conversations within investment committees to say, how are you going to beat inflation? And maybe it's not technology because you've seen a massive, as you alluded to earlier in the episode, Netflix and Apple, and especially Netflix and, and something like Facebook are down substantially, Netflix as well. Um, and so I just think that this is a useful time where it is an opening to have a discussion and maybe to allocate to crypto. And these are moments where there are shifts in a portfolio strategy. And so again, BlackRock um, coming out like this is obviously super supportive uh, and positive. Uh, and I think is p- part of a broader trend where um, increasingly so it takes moments like these to perhaps allocate to the asset class because I mean, face with a, po- okay, Jason, let me ask you a question. Would you rather, I mean, I know the answer to you, but like, think, think objectively, like, would you rather buy something that is trading at like 100, 200, 500 forward P ratio, which is some technology companies out there, or would you rather invest in something like ETH that there's a great tweet by, um, this is guy that like did a P comparison of ETH. Like when you factor in EIP 1559 and the burn and like ETH fees as a network, as a platform, you can compare it to other marketplaces, to other networks. And, you know, it's, I mean, you look at the data and it's, it's quite compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan Alice, I think you're talking about. 
Yeah. Yeah. This guy actually used to work at Arc. Um, it's not. It may be Ryan, but this other guy, he goes by Deconimo in Twitter. I think we'll link we'll link it on the show notes. Um, this was a while back, six months ago. But he compared ETH post EIP fifteen fifty nine uh, to other like networks. And he interesting. He used to work at uh, Kathy Woods Fund, and he hmm. left. Yeah. I would, um, I mean, the last piece of news here is this KPMG thing, just at a super high level. They bought, they put Bitcoin and ETH on their balance sheet. They're one of like the big four. They <laughs> tweeted out GM, which was really funny to see. Um, KPMG advises like <laughs> all the Fortune 500s on their accounting uh, and treasury management. So this is just really interesting because like, not it's not that crazy they bought like a million dollars of bitcoin but this is this is a hundred times bigger news than when when tesla put bitcoin on their balance sheet a hundred times bigger news than when tesla put bitcoin on the balance sheet because kpmg advises nearly every cfo at a fortune 500 has worked with kpmg or does work with kpmg uh and so kpmg is basically i mean it's a genius 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 marketing thing because of any company in the world that's a, like at the Fortune 500 level wants to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. I want to flip a question on you, Santi, and say, uh, like two months ago, you ba- you told me that you sold all your Bitcoin, and you know you're talking about like sometimes you know, five seconds ago you're talking about like sometimes you have to kind of real- reallocate and just look at the scenario and, and like look at your strategies. Does this make you rethink your strategy of uh, having zero percent Bitcoin allocation? Uh, it does definitely. It's obviously very encouraging. I continue to think that. Bitcoin carries this market forward and it is sort of the entry point. If you look at fund flows in, in this space, a lot of it starts in Bitcoin and then it opens up your imagination to something like Ethereum or Solana. Um, do I hold Bitcoin today? Yes, is a short answer. Um, and I always constantly process new information and reallocate. So yeah, yeah I, I've, I now have some Bitcoin. Uh, it is on a relative basis a very small percentage because i just see more interesting things and more earlier stage stuff and so but yeah you're right uh it is very encouraging for bitcoin and there tends to be a lag right jason well at least historically where especially new capital comes into bitcoin and then enters and flows into eth and maybe some alternative like alts call it like that um but yeah no i think that's just an interesting thing to understand is that everyone recommends I think there's a um, tendency to listen to what other people do with their portfolios in crypto and what other people are recommending, but you never see the end of the trade, right? Like all, all the time on Twitter, or even some of my closest friends, like I have, I have some close friends who are like absolute DeFi degens, they're aping into all these pools and what I don't, and so sometimes I'll follow them into things. What they, What doesn't happen though is they say, hey, I got out of this, right? There's this one... A pretty large fund uh, that got into Uniswap a while ago, and there, you know, they had this really convincing argument, and you know, I had lunch with them, and I bought some Uniswap, and uh, Uniswap ended up going down like sixty percent. And I texted them, I was like, "Oh man, brutal for Uniswap." They're like, "Oh no." A couple of days after that lunch, we reevaluated, and we we actually ended up closing our position on that. And you don't mm-hmm. see that, right? And I think it's just a reminder for folks, like. <laughs> You oftentimes get buy signals all the time. There are buy signals, crypto, Twitter, podcasts, but you don't, you're not able to follow the trade through. So it's just an important reminder to like create the portfolio for yourself. Right. I totally agree with that, Jason. I think it's, it's such an important thing because, uh, like George Soros, which I think is one of the most successful investors of all time, um, did a lot of this, 
where he would have lunch or he would like have breakfast with someone else, another portfolio manager. He would think about a stock or go long the market. And then, and then he would be like totally change his mind on the that day. Uh, it goes back to a common principle, which is you always constantly need to process new information. Now, the the counter argument to that is that I think you need to have a, like a, a foundational thesis of how you think this space will evolve, and also construct a portfolio where your your worst enemy is always your mind, right? I mean, in many many cases, it's sort of like the worst trade, the worst mistakes I made in investing in, in asset class like crypto, which is venture with liquidity and you have all this volatility because it's in super price discovery mode is not having a long time duration. Um, and, but, but to be fair, and what I meant by that is, you know, you could have bought ETH years ago and had you held it on, it probably is the most tax effective strategy. Um, and, and time, like I, I say this and I'll say it over and over, which is time in the market beats timing the market. Like it, it's so difficult, right. To, to be timing these markets. Um, and so, you know, but again, the hardest thing as a portfolio manager or just an investor in this asset class is managing risk because things that you might think were going to happen in 10 years happen in two months. And then you're faced with the idea of, of well, what do I do here? And, you know, I think I always think probabilistically, which means if something has gone up like 100x, you then wonder, well, what is the possibility of that going up another 100x versus reallocating to something that might be earlier? Now, I miss a lot in super early stage stuff, so it's easier for me to just rotate. Um, but the, again, the other argument is, well, most of the time we tend to cut our winners too early and, and our losers too late. And so there's there's all these – there's never like something prescriptive. And I hope we never come across as being very prescriptive in this podcast. By the way, none of this is financial advice or recommendations. I think – I think you all, and I'll say this over and over. I think, I think you just need to build your own strategy. Find your edge. It's going to take time. Um, but the most important thing that I hate to see this is people are right about something. They build conviction, and then they they position their portfolio with leverage, which is the root of all evil. Because you see so many forced sellers in this market, time and time again, people get liquidated because they're greedy. And they, you know, and I think in this in this environment, you do not want to play with leverage too much, or just at all, because you're going to be a forced seller, and and you're going to be in a position where you're going to be liquidated. And that time, Jason, that is when you buy in and bid with strength. When you see people that are inherently long and are super positive on the space have to force sell, that's the best time for me, where I just I'll come out of hibernation and be like, all right, time to bid. But most of the time, most people shouldn't. If I could just give one advice, is just don't play with leverage. You're right about the space. You're hit early. Continue to absorb information, process it. And whether you want to be an active trader or not, that's up to you. But I don't know. I think it's impossible to time these markets. And I haven't met someone that can systematically do that. Yeah. Now that you recommended that we don't time the markets, let's try to time the markets. One thing that I want to talk about <laughs> is... Uh, <laughs> no, I... Um, for a couple this is of weeks, yeah, exactly. For a couple of weeks, Santi, I'm totally pivoting off of Bitcoin. We're done with Bitcoin now. Um, we, I want to get okay. So there's this, been this trend and this theme on Empire, which is we've been talking about tokenomics. And one prediction I had for the year is that uh, these blue chip DeFi's they would all alter their tokenomic structures to almost match the multiples of other kind of 
quote unquote, like hotter DeFi projects. There are much hotter DeFi projects that have high multiples. Then you have like Aave and Compound and Uniswap that are like, they just haven't gotten much love recently, but they're so freaking powerful. And so in 2022, I kind of thought that like you'd have these return of the blue chips that was um, uh, spurred by updated tokenomics models. And you're, it's actually playing out, right? You had Yearn, uh, you had kind of like VE Wi-Fi, uh, like VE talks of like VE Maker, right? Like we talked about the, uh, the other day, uh, VE Sushi maybe. And now Stani tweeted out VE Ave, right? And I think there was uh, so much discourse on his tweet uh, that he actually had to delete the tweet. But Stani tweeted out like, should we do VE Ave, right? And uh, that's very interesting to see. And it just sparks a lot of questions in my mind. Um, and so I'm, I'm just, but I'm curious to get your take. I know you're very close to Stani, so I'm not sure how much you can say or not say, but what are your thoughts on Ave moving to a VE model? Um, let's save that for another episode. I mean, I think I need to form a, a, a bit more of an opinion on that, but uh, maybe we can have Stani on and have a, have a discussion with him on that. But I mean, it's the, the thing I'll say is I think this VE model uh, is something that, a lot of protocols are copying for, for good reason. Um, and so, but it requires, um, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not like a hundred percent convinced on, on this. Uh, I think it's enticing for protocols to just, I wonder how much of it is just pure marketing versus just actual depth behind, okay, let's actually move to this and does it make sense for the protocol. There are other things that I, okay. There are other things that I would do in the Aave module in the Aave system and wouldn't necessarily start here. But we can talk about that in another episode. You're not going to tell us? You're not going to tell us what you would do? You want to do a whole episode no, no, on Love It? We could bring Stani back on the show. Yeah, let's have to do that. I mean, I think like I, I've always, for a money market, I think the only thing that matters most is, is insuring funds. And, oh, well, you know, would you silo assets, which I think is V3 introduces that possibility. But I think insurance and the insurance module is something that continuously can be optimized. And there are many different ways that you can do that. And there's a lot of conversations around that. Uh, and this idea of like, you just don't want this bank to go insolvent. And uh, while at the same time, allowing for more flexibility in the assets that you list and the caps that you have and the utilization that is that, that results in this whole strategy. And so I think that there's more substance there and more impact that you can have by focusing on that for a money market. Now, the V model, I think it generally it works better. I'm not critical of that. I just think from a prioritization standpoint, I think there are other things that might be more interesting to optimize in the system. Yeah. Santi, I was like, what are you messaging me on Telegram about this other DAO webinar? Like webinar? I'm like, what are you, by yours truly Blockworks, I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I didn't realize this, you have a webinar with Blockworks right now. You got another Blockworks thing. We're taking thing. up all your time this, right now. Blockworks is, Blockworks has consumed my entire calendar, which is great, by the way. There's just so much to talk about the Bitfinex hack. Uh, there's so much cancel culture these days. I mean, that's something that has been, I don't necessarily if you want to talk about it or not, I mean, can I understand that? But it, it's been, I don't know, I, I, it's been on my mind. It's been, oh my, yeah. I wish you were, uh, should come join Mike and me and uh, we're in Arizona right now. I'll leak the, uh, I'll leak our location. We're in Arizona. You should come join us in Arizona because this is like 
our conversation over beers every night. Um, mm. I think next week we want to talk about, there are a bunch of things that we didn't get to that I want to get to. Like Ave, I want to talk about Ave, and I do want to talk about tokenomics, and we can bring Stani on. I also want to talk about Ave's new social media protocol, Lens Protocol. Um, I also want to talk about B2D. Uh, there's B2C, business to consumer, B2B, business to business, and B2D, which is business to Dow. The Washington Nationals and Terra are doing a uh, a big sponsorship. It's like $40 million over five years or something like that. I also want to talk about cancel culture, um, and I will leave you guys with this, which is if anyone's watching the Super Bowl, uh, there are going to be six different, at least six different crypto advertisements in it. FTX is running a uh, crypto ad. Crypto.com is running a crypto ad. BitBuy is running a crypto ad. eToro is running a crypto ad. Coinbase is running a crypto ad. And keep an eye out for Bud Light's advertisement where you might see the Nouns Project make an appearance. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's crazy, right? I'm sure people are going to say this. Like, peak 1999 bubble of tech. You had all these different startups that are raised all flush with cash buy these ad, like super bowl ads which go for at least a million bucks at least right uh, and so i'm sure yeah you, yeah you probably know better about this stuff so it's it, you i can't wait for the tweet that says oh you know this is this is peak uh of this of this cycle i'm not sure i mean this is super encouraging yeah um oh you know it was also crazy as uh cz this morning binance acquired uh big stake in forbes for 200 million bucks did you see that wow no i hadn't seen that that's yeah. crazy so cz if you're listening uh, you can also, if you spend $200 million, you can sponsor a spot on Empire if you would like. If you would like. So let us know. DM me. Um, Santi, all right, man, um, I know you got to jump for this other Blockworks thing because yeah. now Mike is texting me saying, yeah. where is Santi? So <laughs> we'll do a bigger episode next week. Sorry, guys, this was a little short. Thanks, my friend. It's great to be here. Let's do, let, let, let's do a, a broader, more comprehensive roundup next week with Stani and a bunch of other folks to talk about this stuff. Absolutely. Cool, man. All right, be well. Great. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye.